I just want you to open up your heart, uh, please, uh, to receive what the Lord has through for us through Paul. And would you please warmly welcome him with me, Paul Young. Thanks. Whatever. So, I have teenagers. That's their word. It's also God's word. I'll I'll spend all this time telling him about all my stuff, and he'll go whatever. It's like, we got it covered. Every time I look on the throne, he's not worried. It's like, somebody needs to be worried, so let me do it. <laughs> I, um, I mean, it's a joy to be back with you, it really is. It's, you know, in this great, crazy adventure that I've ended up inside of, um, there aren't a lot of places that I constantly just kind of circle around and reconnect, but this is one of them, and it's very cool, yeah. So I, I get to sort of catch you up on some of the latest craziness and all that. I was, um, as I'm sitting there, and during the time of singing, and um, and by the way, I I love that freedom is allowed to run around here, so just, just saying, and... Uh, <laughs> But as I was sitting here, um, and Nancy was uh, doing whatever those Pentecostal people do with those things over there. <laughs> I'm Christian Missionary Alliance. We don't even like the fact that the Holy Spirit is still active. So it's like, well, within, within reason. Yeah, within reason. Yeah, so, um, but, um, but the sense, you know... Jesus, as a, a Jewish boy, would have memorized Scripture, but he, he is the Word. Right? Even if you memorize Scripture, he is the Word. Uh, it wasn't that uh, in the beginning was the Scripture, and the Scripture was with God, and the Scripture, you know, it's the Word. And, and I knew, and I was going to say this up here, I knew, because every once in a while you get a nudge, even for those of us who, you know, historically were Pentecostal, like A.B. Simpson and A.W. Tozer and the boys in, in my band way back. And, uh, but, um, you know, you get a nudge. As my Presbyterian, really good theological friend says, he gets visuals, right? It's the way you manage language, right? So, um, but... This, I was saying, okay, so here is the word to Nancy, and I think it's a word to a lot of us. This is the living word, right? Jesus. And Jesus, would, and I, these were the three words, the three words of what I was supposed to tell her, and that was, I remember you. And for a lot of us, that's really significant because we don't feel like we're remembered, right? And so she spots me, and she comes over and gives me a hug. And she says, these are her first words to me, you remember me. Right? Right here. Right? And I'm going like, okay. All right. That's cool. That's, that's the life of a child. Right? All children are Pentecostal until somebody tells them otherwise. So <laughs> that's a good word right there. We're done. So... 
<laughs> I want to I share with you something that has been rising up over the last little while. And if you know anything about me, you know that I have no idea what I'm doing. So l- let's get that perfectly clear right from the very beginning. If I knew what I was doing, I'd probably be freaked out, you know. But I don't, which has been the beauty of this whole thing. And I like staying in the space where I really don't know what I'm doing. And, and, um, and so, you know, I tell stories because that's part of how I'm wired. I'm a storyteller. I think every human being is a story. I think it's absolutely holy ground when you're invited inside of the story of someone else. And, and I've been telling people lately that I think that's why we're born barefooted because we're, we're designed to walk on holy ground, which is the story of other people and the, and how our story then intersects their story and it changes it. Right. And, um, um, so I, I love story. Story is something that creates space as far as I'm concerned. And, um, um, and certain kinds of things are, are part of whatever the movement in your life is. And, and one of the most recent ones, and I'll, I'll say it as a statement, and then who knows exactly, because I have no clue really. But I think we're going to go down this path in order to use story to accentuate this one thing. And this is so alive to me right now. Um, I, I was talking to a group of 20-somethings last night um, for a couple hours, and this came up. And I said, if you can begin to grasp this, it will save you decades. It will save you decades. It's one of the things I love about the shack. I, you know, I, I never intended to publish it, but, I, but I, when I wrote it, I'm thinking like, God, if I had had this like 30 years ago, it would have saved me so much time. You know, in terms of trying to work through a lot of the lies that I have worked through, because I grew up in, you know, evangelical fundamentalism, I had a lot. I had a further to go than most people, you know. So, and uh, so, I'm thinking if you can if you can grasp or begin begin to play with this one thought, we have this deep longing and drive toward wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness, which is the same root as holiness, by the way. And holiness is a relational word. We turn it into an intellectual descriptor, and it's not. It's a relational word. And we made another mistake in the sense that, and I'm talking about my family theological tradition here, we linked it to sin, which was a mistake. Because prior to any creation, before anything that was made was made, what is, what is there prior? What is there before the beginning? There is God. And is God a solitary being? No. Is God holy? Yes. But there's no sin. So you cannot ground your understanding of holiness at all 
initially or essentially in a concept of sin at all. What there is, is a relationship of other-centered, self-giving love that is one of a kind. And that's what that word means. It is full, complete, perfect in the sense that it's all integrated. This is a love of three persons who never lose the distinctiveness of their own being. The spirit never becomes the son. The son never becomes the father. But it is other-centered, self-giving love. A great dance. That's holiness. So here here is the sentence, and then we'll unpack it over the next few minutes. Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. Okay? Wholeness is when the truth of your being matches the way of your being. Or to reverse it, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. And we'll unpack this because this is really significant. Wholeness, when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. So, the way of your being is how you live your life, how you express your life, how you act, how you relate, how you think, how you... So that's the way of your being. What is the truth of your being? See, that's the question now. Because if wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being, it becomes absolutely critical that you know what the truth of your being is. So let me tell you one of the greatest lies of my evangelical heritage. They told me the truth of my being was depravity. That's what they told me. And I looked at my life and it was a wreck. So it made sense. And I believed it. Now, I was in a real major tension because if the truth of my being is depravity and brokenness and damage and God is requiring a way of being that is other than that, how am I going to match it? How do I get the way of my being to match the truth of my being when the truth of my being is depravity or sin or brokenness? Do you understand the conflict? So what we do is we maintain that the truth of our being is our sin and our brokenness and our damage. And we listen to anybody who will tell us how to get our behavior to match God's truth of his being. Because he's good and righteous and holy and all these things. But we've accepted that the truth of our being is damage and sin. And so now we've got the law that tells us you need to be like this. Because you know, this is what God requires. And we can't match it. And so even when we, through self-discipline and other works of the flesh like that, because self-discipline is not a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't come from the inside out. It comes from the outside in. So, so we will use self-discipline and those kinds of things to try 
to act as if the truth of our being is better than it actually is. So even when we do the right thing for a period of time, according to whatever the law is, we feel like we're being fakes. And it's just a matter of time before we run out of the energy and we're going to go back to being what we really believe we are, which is a piece of crap. And this is why shame dominates us, even inside, because we're inside this tension. All right, now I'm going to tell you a story and, and kind of unpack this for you, and, um, because this will make some sense when we, when, we, when we get to the other side of the story. I'm going to tell you about my dad and my relationship with my dad. And you've heard some of this, but there's a lot of other things that, are, that have happened, and I want you to kind of have a global sense of this. And, and I have, you know, because of um, the kind of family that I grew up in, my, my dad and I have had a contentious type of, it's not even a relationship, it's more like um, an ongoing conflict. And... Um, uh, and it's not because he had any other intention than to try to be a good father. He just didn't have the chip for it. By the time I was born, and I'm the oldest of four, by the time that I showed up, my dad's ability to be a father had been completely dis- devastated by his father. And, uh, and his father by his father before him. And I know this, and the reason part, I know a lot about this, because... My, my dad's oldest sister, and he is one of ten, my dad's oldest sister is a historian. She's 94 years old. My father is 87, 85. My mom's 87. And they're both alive, uh, living up in British Columbia. And um, my uh, Aunt Gladys, my dad's oldest sister, is a historian. I mean, she literally writes the histories for communities up and down the coast of British Columbia and other places. And she has this big book of our family history on my dad's side. So I know a lot about where my dad comes from. And I know that my great-grandfather moved from Arkansas, Little Rock area, up to Spokane County in Washington. And... Um, um, and my grandfather was born up there. Um, I know that my great-grandfather was known to be a strict disciplinarian, which is the word that they used to use for abusive. Right? And he literally disciplined his children with a cat of nine tails. He'd line them up, because he would be gone on trips, and he would line them up, and if there was any negative report about any of them, he used a cat of nine tails on them. And my grandfather grew up in that. Well, my grandfather was a complete mess. Right? And this is part of my heritage. So my grandfather, um, he became an itinerant uh, laborer. That is, he worked in the, uh, the, fee- uh, the um, orchards up in uh, Washington in Spokane County. And my... Uh, uh, they were, they lived outside of Spokane, then he would work in the orchards, and um, he would go, he, he was married to a woman, and they adopted Gracie, and Gracie was um, uh, one, uh, uh, one of twins, and they tried to adopt both girls, but they didn't get there in time, and one of the girls had been already adopted a different direction, so they took the one girl, and um, and 
my grandfather would go down into the city in Spokane, and he would uh, he would go particularly to listen to little children who would come onto the street corners and sing. They did this to earn extra change. And they would sing country western songs, they would sing old hymns, they would sing um, just folk songs, right? These little kids. And my grandfather became especially enamored with this one blonde-haired, curly-haired little 11-year-old. And he would, on weekends, go to listen to her and give her coins. Now, enamored is what he got. A couple years later, she, uh, her, this little girl had an older brother, 17, I think, at the time, and, and so she, when she was about 13 or 12, 12, I think, um, um, my grandfather made friends with her brother in order to get close to her. And um, took him hunting and things because my my grand my father my grandfather and my great grandfather were all marksmen hunters trappers marksmen and they'd served some military time dishonorably discharged stuff like that and and it was kind of a big mess and so so this twelve year old uh, girl um, her mom had uh, divorced from her dad, and then got involved in a long-distance letter-writing relationship with a guy in Billings, Montana. And at one point, she upped, packed up all her stuff, and took a train to Billings, Montana, leaving the children at home in the care of a neighbor who had two little children as well. And the neighbor raped the little girl. And my grandfather came to her rescue, took her into his home, where his wife and Gracie, who was about the same age, and about that time, um, an epidemic came through, and Gracie was quarantined, and so the, so the woman that my grandfather was married to at the time um, stayed in the house, and my grandfather and this little girl stayed out in a tent, and she was 12, I believe, and that's when their relationship turned physical. Her first miscarriage was at 13. And at 15, my grandfather ran away with her up into the British Columbia, across the border into Canada. And he faked a marriage to her. He hired a, a preacher to perform the wedding, and then he signed the own, his own documents. We have it all, right? This is like really twisted. Now, when my grandmother gave birth to her first child, she was 15, and my grandfather was 46. That little girl is my grandmother. She died at 39 having given birth to 10, actually 12 children, two of who did not survive. So he didn't divorce his first wife, but he faked marriage to this girl. 
and then raised children in the middle of the coastal part of British Columbia. And when my father, who was in the middle of the pack, was uh, 12 years old, about 12 years old, um, his, his mother had already died, and she had spent time in an insane institution before she passed. I mean, it's a huge mess, right? And um, my dad at 12 is now orphaned because my grandfather died. And children's services at that time came in to try to figure out what to do with all these kids. And the girls, they put in families that knew them, but the boys, they, they put in farm labor servitude. That was the way. They put them in farms. And so, and I heard about this the first time because I overheard a conversation that my dad was having with one of his siblings about the fact that they were always on the outside, like living in the barns, watching the families through the windows. And at 12, he's put in, you know, he's, one of his brothers he didn't see for 40 years. I mean, they spread them all over the U.S. and Canada. The big family secret was that the family was the illegal aliens from the U.S. They had slipped across the border into Canada, right? Uh, in all the other dysfunction that was going on, it, that was the big secret that they were trying to keep. <laughs> so, so, my, at 14, my dad is working in the farm, and... and uh, an adoption service comes through and is going to adopt him. And he runs away back from um, Washington State and into British Columbia and into the logging camps. He becomes a logger at 14. And logging camps were, you know, kind and wonderful, embracing sorts of places, right? No, this was really... Difficult. My dad at 14 is a logger. At 18, my Aunt Gladys, his oldest sister, and Aunt Bonnie, two of his sisters, who had become uh, followers of Jesus, they kind of dragged my dad to a sawdust trail tent meeting. You know, the old camp meetings that they would have. And my dad, had a, at 18, had this massive encounter with Jesus. So he walks out of the logging camps and travels to Saskatchewan, central Canada, and goes into Bible school and meets my mom. They get married. He takes a little church in Alberta. And I'm born 10 months after they get married. When I'm 10 months old, we pack everything we have, and the three of us move to the other side of the world, to the highlands of New Guinea, where I grow up as a missionary kid. My dad is a, he's a hunter-trapper, right? He comes from this huge, dysfunctional mess, and he does not have the chip for being a dad. You understand? He's bringing what he's got. And he's hanging on to Jesus because Jesus pulled him out of a mess. But he does, you know, so pioneer mission work is right down kind of the alley. He doesn't know how to be a father, but he knows how to be in the middle of a jungle where nobody's ever been before. And so we moved into the highlands of New Guinea to a tribal culture that had never seen a white person before, and I'm a year old. 
right? This is spirit-worshipping, warring, uh, ritualistically cannibals. They were they cannibalized as ritual. And, uh, and the tribe we were a part of, now New Guinea is very unusual. It has 850, well over, well over 800 unrelated language groups. Unrelated, right? And our tribe was big. Well, probably the biggest. Western Dani, it was uh, um, forty to 60,000 people over 100 square miles. So, big tribe. When I was five years old, I was the informant for Wycliffe when they came in to translate the language because I was the only one that could speak it. I was a year old when I went in. right? But that's the world that I grew up in. Well, my dad was gone, and he was trekking, and I didn't want to be around him because he was a very angry young man. He had carried all this anger with him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but just because you begin to deepen in your relationship with Jesus, it doesn't just take everything away. You know, it's. I was telling, uh, I think, Suzanne and Brent about, you know, part of my history being non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic thing, you know. And uh, and I said, you know, we used, we used to watch people that went down under the anointing or power or whatever, and they always came up basically the same. <laughs> it was like, well, that's pretty cool, but it didn't really change anything, you know. And And part of that is, is because the damage has got to be worked out in a way that doesn't violate you. This is part of the beauty of the way God works in our life. He submits to us. This is a God who submits by nature. And we don't know that. We've made him a a monster warrior deity off in the distance that we can't even kind of really get close to. So, I mean, you can get closer to Jesus than to God the Father. But, But that's how we we think about it. We don't think about the fact that when Jesus washes the feet, he is acting as part of his own very character, right? It's not like he's just doing this because it's a good teachable moment and he's going to set an example. No, he washes the feet because that's what he does by nature. He's a servant, not because it's a really great title because it wasn't at the time. We've glorified it to some kind of thing where you can still maintain all your power and privilege as long as you have, you know, you have the title. Back then it was like for real servant, you know, slave kind of servant. And that's, that's a God who submits, has no problem with the, serv- the service and the giving and the, that kind of, you know. So, so my father was a, Strict disciplinarian. And I didn't want anything to do with him. He's, he terrified me. Right? And, um, and so, uh, in, in my family, only the righteous man was allowed to be angry. So I, by the time that I, well, my whole, until I was 38 years old, I was never angry. Right? I was irritated and sarcastic. Right? but not angry because only the righteous man was allowed to be angry. And that was my dad. And so I had a lot of my dad on the face of God. And it, and it took me literally the shack is a statement about the movement in my life. Cause I wrote the shack when I turned 50 and, and I am writing this, this, um, using imagery that is outside the box I grew up in because the box I grew up in had so devastated my life. 
And I'm trying to say God is so much different than that. Because it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. So my journey with my father has been um, difficult. I I had never had any father-son conversation with him. You know, that you see and you watch and you experience now as a father and a grandfather. Those conversations, I never had any of those. Right? My dad was dangerous. And, um, and it's funny. We have four children in our family, funny in, a, in the kind of like strange sort of funny way. But four children, and, and this is true in any family. If you had all your siblings write a history of your family, you'd have four very different histories. Right? In fact, it raises some issues of contention, right? Because we're so used to translating the scripture of our history in such a way that we don't want anybody else's interpretation, right? And it's just part of the dynamics of human beings. You can put 10 children in front of the same abuse, you'll have 10 lives go 10 totally different directions. Because, because it, it's not just the abuse that has an impact, it's the uniqueness of that child and what happens to them and how they interpret it and how they hear it. My sister, we have three boys and one girl in our family. Um, I was born first and then Debbie came second and then two brothers. My sister was never hit. And a, a year ago, year and a half ago, I'm having this conversation with Debbie and and it... it all of a sudden, she is really angry with me. And I'm, I'm going like, why are you so angry with me? And she goes, because you, you don't even see me. I'm going like, what are you talking about? And what had happened was, when I was in high school, she was always referred to as Paul's sister. Right? And, and that had really gotten her mad. So now I'm like the author of the shack, Right? And so I'm trying not to her to be Paul. Oh, she's Paul's sister, you know, the author of The Shack, you know? <laughs> and, and so I was trying to not step into that. But what she heard me do was not identify her as belonging with me, right? And as we talked about it, she said, I saw what happened to you boys but I wasn't even worth being hit. Do you see what her as a child interpreted that as? She wasn't even worth being hit. So you don't see me. Right? Different ways that we relate to the same history because of the uniqueness of who we are where we are in the birth order, what we were exposed to, how we interpreted, what was going on else in our lives. So unique. And we've, we've got to open up the family conversation in our humanity that allows for all this divergence in terms of how it impacted us. It's one of the ways that we're going to learn how to communicate with each other is to let those stories be stories, real. Because they're real to me, Right? And, and what I got from a particular situation is vastly different than one of my kid, one of my kid sister, my kid sister, or my kid brothers did. So I didn't want to have anything to do with my dad. I, he was 
angry and, and dangerous, and so I didn't. Good thing was I was shipped out to boarding school when I was six, so I didn't have to deal with them. But I was so disconnected. My mother was a follower. And I was talking to, this, uh, to Debbie about this, too. And I said, you know, what's interesting is that I have a lot of memories of my dad. And they're all very difficult. I have no memories of my mom at all. Because she was a follower. She just disappeared. Right? Inside the wake of my dad's anger and domination, right? And she had been taught that way. German Baptist girl, submissive, you know. Thankfully, I married, I didn't marry a nice Christian, submitted Christian girl. (laughs) You know, I married both the wrath of God and the love of God. (laughs) I'm serious. Saved my life. Saved my life. So my... um, my growing up with my dad was difficult. Who knows? Maybe we'll talk about some of that tomorrow night. <laughs> so, I, you know, I went to boarding school. The other piece of brokenness that you need to understand inside of this is that inside the tribal culture, see, going to boarding school was a major, pivotal transition for me because I was six years old, just turned six. And um, I was sent out to boarding school, and that's when I found out in a, in a conscious way that I was white, which was a huge disappointment. Uh, <laughs> but here's, the, here's the, the difficult side of that. In that one trip, I lost my family, I lost my tribe, I lost my identity. Because I already didn't belong to either my parents. My parents were old missionary guard. That is, if we're doing what God tells us to do, then God will take care of the kids. So I was raised Donnie. That was my first dreaming language. It was, that was where I was around their conversations when they were trying to figure out whether to kill my parents or not. As a four-year-old, as a five-year-old, right? And so I'm totally disconnected. And now I find out I don't even belong there. So I'm tapping into some of the issues with multicultural kids, third culture kids, missionary kids, military kids, embassy kids, business kids that raise, are raised in a culture different from their parents. And then they go back to the culture of their parents where they don't fit. And by the time they get back to the culture they grew up in, they don't fit either. And they be, they, the issue of belonging becomes the, one of the central issues for third culture kids. Where do I belong? That's why this little phrase, I remember you, matters. Right? So sexual abuse started happening for me inside the tribal culture before I was five. This is why in both Shack and Crossroads you have five-year-olds. It's significant to me. Missy is me. It's the child murdered in me, right? And I'm also Mackenzie, trying to figure out how to deal with it, right? Mackenzie's weekend represents 11 years for me. When I'm, 
working my way through this, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how do I how do I relate to my dad in all this? You know, I uh, boarding school, the sexual abuse that had begun in the tribal culture continued in boarding school, Christian missionary boarding school, right? The, the horror stories you've heard, they happen. So dangerous. Come back to Canada before I'm 10 years old, and we, my father becomes an itinerant minister. I don't even know why we came back. I made up stories until I found out when I was 38. And um, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. So I moved a lot. So, I, so I'm an expert at leaving. Right? Because every, every hello is a goodbye just waiting to happen. So the idea of depth of relationship plus, you know, the shame that is a part of that whole history and everything else, what is the truth of my being? The truth of my being is that I am an absolute piece of crap and I got a theology that backs it up. And now I'm trying to get the way of my being to match it and I'm attracted to Jesus and I'm attracted to the idea of that God loves me and thankfully, Jesus came to save me from that God, right? Because that God looks like my dad. And that, and that God is willing to beat the hell out of his son to be right with other people. Duh. But thankfully, Jesus came to stand between me and that God. And as long as Jesus stays between the two of us, who knows what the Holy Spirit's doing? You know, whose side she's on? Who knows? So, but that's where my theology was. And I'm drawn because I have all these questions. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to ask them because I, you know, it was a religious environment. So questions and rebellion are kind of the same thing. And, uh, (laughs) you know, so I got to work through them on my own. And I'm, I'm wrestling with questions and questions and trying to figure out how does this go together and live a life at the same time. And trying to... So I move, you know. I, I become a performer because that's what you do. I, if you're a firstborn missionary preacher's kid, you become a performer. Well, what's a, what are you trying to perform? You're trying to cover up the fact that you have a shack on the inside. You create a facade that you can present to the world and say, look... I don't want you coming past the facade because then you're going to find out the truth of my being. And frankly, I hate the truth of my being, which is a piece of crap, right? So I'm out here painting this facade as fast as I can pick up your expectations. What do you want me to be? That's the question, right? Just tell me what you want me to be. I'm doing the same thing to God. Just, would you just tell me what you want? Because if you can just tell me, I'll try to do that. Because it's about pleasing you, right? Because it was about pleasing my dad, and I was never able to do it. Uh, maybe for a day. So all of that is wrapped up into some of this, and why I wrote what I did, trying to communicate to my children, because I didn't write it for the world. I wrote it for my kids as a gift for Christmas. And I'm saying, look, let me tell you about the God who actually showed up and healed me, not the one I grew up with. 
So you can see that my relationship with my dad is very intertwined with this entire journey. So what you do is you become, um, you, you manage it as best you can, right? And, and it's not that my dad didn't do incredible things. He did. He helped a lot of people. He did. I mean, you look at the record and he did. Plus, one of the things that, if there was only one thing I could count on from my dad, it was that he prayed. He was a prayer person. And if I remember, that'll come into the story a little bit. Because, but, but he still is. Prayer was a way, it was kind of his lifeline to hold on to a, a, a sense of connectedness with God. And that's what he did. He prayed. And, you, and prayed loud and long, even by himself in his room. Even now, he's 85, and he lives, uh, my mom and dad live down below in the, in the basement uh, suite where, of my sister and her husband. So they live upstairs. And Tony, who has no faith history background at all, who loves Jesus now, but he'll go every morning, and my dad doesn't even know this, but he'll go sit on the stairway to listen to my dad pray every morning. And my dad just prays. And he prays for me, and he prays for the family, and he, pr- he does this. This is the one thing, right? So that ties into the story in two different ways, and I'll tell you in a second. So over the years, I know I was out of the house when I was 16, um, working, and then went to school, and I just kind of was gone. When Christmas came... I usually had a reason to be with the international students as opposed to going home, you know? And I'm the firstborn. And so I basically left my sister to manage the world. And, uh, and that's what she did. She stepped into that role. And I was off doing God's thing, which is always a great excuse for not having to deal with actual relationships. But, <laughs> but uh, right? So, it works. I mean, and so... Um, over the course of the year, I graduate, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I get a degree in theology and, uh, and I go to seminary, but I meet Kim and that starts a whole different, um, part of the story. But my relationship with my dad stays cordial and distant, right? And, but there's little incremental changes in me. I'm 50 years old and I write The Shack. And if you've read it, you know about chapter 15. That's the chapter where the, the lights and Mackenzie has this massive reconciliation with his father. Right? That chapter in The Shack is, is the only chapter in the book that has never been touched in a rewrite. It is in the book the way I wrote it the day I wrote it. Right? It was part of a day where I wrote four complete chapters just like in a river. And that was the fourth of the four. And it wrecked me to the core. Because what I did is I put my hope for my relationship with my dad into that chapter. Not because it was actually real in any sense. I just wanted it in... I wanted that. Right? So as you know, if you're missing a dad or or you've never known your dad, or your, your dad has not been a father to you, you spend a chunk of your life looking for one. 
And I could go into lots of descriptions about how I did that over my life and ended up in difficulty or betrayed or all these messy stories, right? And But I'm, I'm incrementally changing. My internal world is being put back together. And as it is, it's affecting how I relate to my dad. And it's changing my responses to him in ways that I don't even know because they're so subtle. When, you, when you're in a process of change, things are happening and you don't have a clue. A lot of us feel like we just go around in circles. Same stuff, same crap, same thing. It's just a matter of time. I'm there again. Here we go, right? Not true. Now, the way that I look at it is it's, it's like a spiral down or a spiral up. So either way, you're, and, I'm, and I don't use up and down negatively either, in either sense. It's just how you're looking at it. But, but you're, when you go around a spiral, you're actually going deeper, but you're seeing the same territory. Nobody is the same tomorrow as they will be today. Nobody. Incremental. See, we are so incredibly wound and intricately made that it's, it only, God is the only one who knows how to put this little piece over here that unlocks all of these things and connects with this little piece that seems to us absolutely unrelated. Have you been in a situation where your response to something is completely different than it would have been 20 years ago or 10 years ago? And you're going like, who is this? You know, it's like with my, my grandchildren, I have a capacity to be present with them that I didn't have as a father. And I don't know exactly how I got there, but I know that this constant work, he who has begun a good work in you, right? And by the way, the way God looks at this process is glory to glory. And glory is the essential nature of a person, place, or thing. So from God's point of view, this is not cruddy to glory or glory to glorier, right? This is, this is like glory to glory. And, and glory, if it's the essential nature of a person, place, or thing, it's talking about the truth of your being. It's the movement deeper and deeper into the truth of who you are. The uniqueness of who you are. So, I watch these little incremental... I write the shack. And one of the big... One of the big questions is going to be, what's my dad going to think of this? Okay, I, I wrote this, uh, and it, was pub- it got printed for the first time in 2007. I still don't know if he's read it. Right? Rumor has he has, and we've had a little bit of interaction here and there, because my wife is not from my history. She's in Minnesota, North Dakota, right? There are no 50 shades of anything in North Dakota. <laughs> right? It's black or white. I mean, these... These people are not from my world. These people are genetically enhanced to all talk loudly at the same time and understand each other. You betcha. Yeah. I come from a religious family. We hide everything. We lie about most stuff. And, you know. Even when we get together, we have to have an order of service. Kim's family is not like that. So a few, year, a few years ago... Oh, 
my, I'm, I'm sitting at the, at my dad's and mom's table, and, and my dad is standing next to me, and Kim is 10 feet away. And Kim just suddenly, out of the blue, turns to my dad and says, so Henry, have you even read the shack? <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> and she turns, I mean, he, she's there, he turns his back to me, folds his arms, and he says, well, when you read an author like this, when you read an author like this, you have to take into consideration proper theology. But it seems to be doing some good for a lot of people, so who am I to say? But by the time he said that, this, he was about 82 at this point, there's been this movement in my life at his 80th birthday, I was there. And I went for a walk afterwards. And it was, it was, I've never heard God speak audibly. I have friends who have. But it's kind of a joke between us. And, but, he's, he, but I know the voice. And I know the embrace. And I'm walking along and it's like God the Father just put the armor on me and said, Paul, you know your dad. I said, yeah, I know my dad. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't known how to be a father for 60 years. He's not suddenly going to figure it out. But if it's okay to you, I will be all that to you and more. 80th birthday. And that completely, that was five years ago, that completely was the last piece of releasing him from any expectation to ever fill that role. It doesn't mean that there isn't loss. But it does mean that the loss is not wounding anymore. And it's somehow been woven into something that God has built for life. Right? Because God doesn't just obliterate that history. He weaves it into the sound that we have become. And so... I had this, my dad, he's an old-time preacher guy, right? So I don't know if you've been around these guys, but if you ask them to pray, they get possessed and have a different voice. And, <laughs> right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The, the first time it happened with, my, with Kim, right? We're up at a family thing, and so my dad prays, and as soon as he changes his voice and becomes this other human being... Kim thinks he's making a joke and, and bursts out laughing and then realizes, oh my gosh, he's serious. Right? She, she had never been around anything like that. And uh, so, so I'm on the phone. Uh, uh, let's see, this was like the year before his 80th birthday. So um, this would have been six years ago. So I'm on, no, it's actually more recent than his 80th birthday. So I'm on the phone with him. And I'm in, I'm in Amarillo, Texas, speaking at something, and, and he, uh, it's Father's Day. Now, in my relationship with my dad, I do all the initiating, right? I've, um, he's called me three times in my life. Um, actually, four now, but I'll tell you about the fourth one. But three times in my life. One was when Debbie got pregnant out of wedlock. Second time when my brother Stephen was killed. 
and six months later when my five-year-old niece Jennifer was killed the day after her fifth birthday. In the middle of those six months, Kim's mom died unexpectedly at 59. We had a massive series of shock losses in a six-month period, and I got two phone calls from my dad. So those are my three phone calls. I'll call him. Right? So I'm t- I call him on Father's Day. I call him on Christmas, and, and I try to make a connection. I'm the one that initiates. Now, my, mother, my mother's pretty good at email and things like that. If I initiate, she'll respond. And um, um, so I call my dad on Father's Day, and, and we're having our cordial conversation, you know. And at the end, he just slips into this persona and ends the conversation, well, God bless you, brother. And I'm going, I'm in Amarillo going like, this is so funny. Like, what do I do? You know? Because it didn't hurt me. Because I'm, I'm not there anymore. Do you understand? I'm not there anymore. So it's like, okay. Oh, what do you do with this? Right? Because we, and we've never talked. We've never talked about when my life blew up. My mom showed up. My dad didn't. We didn't talk about what happened on the mission field. He won't go there. I mean, we just don't. Do you understand? So... So we have these little incremental little bits. I wrote um, a book called um, The Shack Reflections, which is sort of like a daily thought, you know, based on quotes from the shack and then a response to them. And, um, and when I wrote it, um, the, I, you know, you, one of the coolest things about ending up being a writer is that you, you get to put stuff in there just because. And like like dedications. So you get to say, oh, this is for, because I'd done it with the shack with, for my kids, right? Well, in the reflections, I wrote, and then I forgot about it, but I wrote to Henry and Bernice Young, who will always be known as people of prayer. Right? That's my dedication in reflections. And then I forgot. Right? I put it in, I, I sent it to the publisher and um, and then I forgot about it until I got my first copy. And then I open it up, and I'm looking at the dedication, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, look what I did. Well, this should be interesting, right? And um, um, I, send a, I sent copies up to my mom and dad, and, and I just was like, what's going to happen here? So this is, the, this is the email I get from my mom, all right? So I got a couple of these emails that I'm going to... Because this is going to kind of wrap it up for us in terms of where I'm going with all this. If I can find... Oh, back pocket. Never mind. Because I can't see anymore. Anything closer than 10 feet is just a blur. So... um, You should have seen Dad's face when he turned to me after he opened the first page. This is Reflections. There was utter surprise and amazement in his face, and he said, Did you read this? Here's the line. For the first time, I feel that your dad has truly accepted your forgiveness for the past. Did you catch that? For the first time, 
I feel your dad has truly accepted your forgiveness for the past. We have never had that conversation. I've extended it to him in different, in many different ways. But until I wrote that little dedication, kind of on a fly, kind of on a nudge, and then forgot about it, and until he read it. You see, I've always thought of forgiveness as what I ask for and, and get back. But I hadn't thought about the process of forgiving yourself, which is the hardest. And so my dad had been not able to accept my forgiveness until he saw something that communicated that I'd moved, right? In terms of forgiving himself. And it was a profound little moment. So move forward. I know they, they listen to talks that I've given and I've talked about my dad and very clearly, very openly. And, um, but there's no communication about that. Um, I spoke uh, up in their area and my dad came. And as he's walking out, he kind of gives me a hug and he leans over and he said, that was the single best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And he left. It was a couple years ago. Last Thanksgiving, I went up to see them. And I had one thing that was burning on my heart, kind of like the little statement for Nancy tonight. And I wanted to tell my dad. Because I'd, I'd remembered something about when I was a teenager, and I remembered that my dad had secretly sent away to correspondence school so that he could learn how to become a writer. He wanted to write westerns, you know, Zane Grey and all of that. By the way, is there a clock around here? I have no idea. What... Okay. It's nine? Okay. I got about ten more minutes. So my, he wanted to become a, a writer of westerns, and he started. And I would sneak into his office, because I couldn't tell him, Right? So I'd sneak into his office and read the novels that he had started. And I liked them, but I couldn't even tell him that I knew. And I brought it up to him a couple years ago, and I said, Hey, Dad, whatever happened to all those novels, you know, those westerns you were writing? And he said, Oh, they were rubbish. And that was the end of that conversation. So last Thanksgiving, I went up there with one thing to say to him. Now, I'm at a place where in my life, finally, where when I participate that way, I'm not looking for an outcome to validate it. I'm participating, and it's kind of like, we'll see what happens. If you, as soon as you set up an expectation, you've got a disappointment that's just right there, right? Expectations will kill you. Right? We're designed to live with expectancy, not with expectations. Expectations are just a form of legalism. And, and so... I went up there to tell him something regardless of his response. It was just, I want to say this to him. And I did. I said, there was a moment, and it was right. And I said, Dad, I want you to know something. I think I got my creativity from you. And I, it caught him for like a nanosecond. <laughs> 
right? It slipped through this impenetrable wall for a nanosecond because I saw it and then it shut down. And he turned to me and he said, well, then I feel sorry for you. <laughs> and he sort of laughs because this is what you do. You, you hide these kind of things inside humor in order to make it okay, right? But that's all he has. That's what he had to bring right then at that moment. But I got to say something that I wanted to tell him. That was a year ago. This last summer, about four months ago, my mother... Now, you have to understand something else about my dad. He has shown up for her. My mother's had a lot of physical issues. My dad has shown up for her. And, and she mentions it in that same email saying, I wish you could see how your dad has shown up for me. Without begrudging, without you know any of that stuff, he has shown up for her. And, um, and uh, although in the same email she says, but I don't miss his fits of anger one little bit. <laughs> Just, okay. So, uh, and so my, um, my dad, who has been taking care of my mom for the last five years, basically, and, uh, and um, she has a problem with her leg and has to go into re- a rehabilitation um, care facility for three months through December, this last December. And um, so, you know, up till a month ago, actually into January before she went home. And, um, and my dad kind of went nuts because he didn't know what to do with his whole world because he could go up and visit her for a couple hours, but then it's like, I mean, he cooked, he cleaned, he did everything, did the laundry, did everything, showed up. And now she's being taken care of, and he's kind of going, my sister calls me. She says, we've got to find something for Dad because he's driving me crazy, right? And, and she says this, I've been trying to find L.P. Holmes novels for him. Did you know, this is what, three months ago, right? Three months ago. Did you know that L.P. Holmes is his favorite author? No, I didn't know that. I only know historically one thing that my dad likes. Chinese food. (laughs) Right? And we'd go there on Sunday afternoons after church. That's all, that's the only thing I've ever known that he liked. So my sister says, I've been trying to find L.P. Holmes novels and I can't find any. I said, well, let me try. So I start scouring the internet for L.P. Holmes novels. And I'm like in the Wyoming secondhand bookstore, cowboy bookstore in Wichita, Kansas. And I mean, all over the whole country. And I find 44 L.P. Holmes novels, different novels. And I could get them for like two bucks or three bucks in shipping and handling. And, uh, and so I had them all shipped to my house. So I, when they got there, I had this biggest stack and I put them into a box and I sent them to my dad. But right before I sent them, I took a three by five card and I wrote him a note. In the flow of the day, in like, well, I can't just send the box. So I would just write him a note. In not trying to do anything, no agenda, just like, okay, 
I'm going to write a note, stick it in there. Right? Sent it up there. I then go up and speak up in Seattle area. And I had, they'd given me a rental car at the airport. And so I went back, and I'm taking the rental car back, and I'm in the, the bus shuttle from the SeaTac rental car area to the main terminal, and I get a call. And it's my dad. And I go, hello? And he starts the conversation this way, and we talk for 40 minutes. Most of it, I mean, it was still this really how do we do this kind of talk. But this is how he starts the conversation. Paul, I want you to know something. All the L.P. Holmes novels in the world would mean nothing to me compared to the note you wrote. And then he starts telling me things that are going on and he starts telling me for the first time in my life how much he loves my mother. And how she saved his life. I'm going like, what did I write in the note? Because <laughs> he doesn't tell me. And I, I kind of remember... So, let me tell you what I wrote in the note. I told him I I was able to find these, and I'm so thrilled to actually give you something that I know you like. And the last two sentences I wrote this. Dad, I know you took... I believe you are a courageous man because you took a huge step away from your history, which gave me the ability to take a big step away from mine. And then here's the last sentence. I want you to know that I believe you are a very good man. Love your son, Paul. Do you know what I did? I told my father the truth of his being. My mother sends me an email. (laughs) I wish you could have been there when he got your gift of books. And when he came to tell me about it and to show me the beautiful note that you wrote to him, he glowed. I never thought I would see the day when the look of low esteem that he had would be replaced by a new expression of joy and incredulity that was on his face. He said over and over, I never knew our Paul would think this way about me. Listen to this line. You have changed your dad into a new person. You've changed your dad into a new person. You understand what I did? I didn't understand it at the moment that I did it. But I am at a place 
where I was able to relate to him according to the truth of his being, not the way of his being. He believed he was worthless. And he expressed a life based on that belief. And all these years later, I'm able to disconnect my history from him in such a way that I can tell him the truth of his being. And it changed him. Not technically into a new person, but it told him the truth of who he was in a way he heard it at the time he could hear it which took us all these years. Let me tell you something about the truth of your being. The truth of your being is that you were and are a very good creation before any of the damage. And you are a new creation. That's the truth of your being. Until you know that, you cannot match the way of your being with the truth of your being. Let me give you a simple illustration that will drive it home. Because of my history, in part, because of my lostness inside my own fortress, because of my inability to have depth of relationship, because of my facade building, because of all these kinds of things, I was hugely and completely addicted to pornography a, a good chunk of my life. I've had no issue, not even remotely, not even close, not even kind of, for over 20 years with it. And the question is why? Because I worked hard to try to stop. Now, you realize what pornography is, right? It is the imagination of a relationship that I can control without the risk of having a real one, right? Because a real one is too unmanageable. So you, what you do is you project through an image someone who will love you for yourself, right? It's an imagination of a relationship because you cannot deal with how hard the reality of trust is, right? Because the trust is the big issue. And, and it wasn't that I finally got a handle on self-discipline. That's not, there's no answer there. And it wasn't that I got into an accountability group that was too good for me to outsmart. <laughs> right? And it wasn't because I, was, I had the fear of God put in me about going to hell or something, right? Do you know what happened? I learned the truth of my being. I, I got to the place where I understood that the truth, of, the truth of Paul Young's being is that he is pure of heart. That's the truth of my being. I'm a very good creation. I, by nature, am kind. I, by nature, am gentle. 
I by nature do not abuse human beings, whether through imagination or in any way. That is the truth of my being. And once I knew the truth of my being, the way of my being could match it. Let me tell you how powerful that is. If you can begin to grapple with that, because it'll run you right up against every lie you believe about yourself. Especially when your experience has told you you're nothing. You're worthless. You're a piece of crap. You're just this. You're just that. You're not enough. We cannot abide with that being the truth of our being. It's a lie. And once you begin to grapple with this, it changes everything. Because now you can't just fall back on, well, I'm just a piece of crap. This is just what I do. It's not true. You're not impatient. It's not the truth of your being. The Holy Spirit, who is patience, has been joined to you. And the truth of your being is, you are patient by nature. For you to be impatient is to go contrary to the truth of your being. But if you keep telling yourself, I'm just impatient, you're lying to yourself in order to justify a way of your being that is contrary to the truth of your being. And that's conviction. That tension is conviction. And guess what? Truth is not an idea. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is a revelation of the truth of your being. You want to know who you are? A unique expression of? It's the very nature and character of God. And God is kind and just and good and loving and furious at anything that hurts those he loves. But the truth of your being is that you are a very good creation and a new one. And from there, everything opens up. That's the basis for change and transformation and wholeness. Be holy, whole. When you know the truth of your being, the way of your being can match it to the praise of his glory. Amen?